Howdy, Midnight Warriors, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Chris Gallagher. On today's show, we're reviewing the super Panavision Western, The Hateful Eight. Then in special features, we will discuss the Kanye West of the cinematic world and Talkin' Tarantino. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Well, Chris, the American Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences recently released their nominees for the Best Films and Filmmakers of the Year 2015. Uh, There were naturally some snubs, and by and large, I would say the list was greeted with delight, some dissension, mostly what we see all the time. However, by and large, despite the snubs, I would say that this list is pretty much what we all expect it to be. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's it's the Oscars. There's there's hardly a Oscar season when I'm surprised by where things go. So, I mean, it is what it is. We I think we discussed either on the last episode or maybe the one before, um, you know, whether or not we wanted Star Wars to make it in. And obviously, like Star Wars is not a movie that I think deserves Best Picture. But I I think when you have 10 uh, or up to 10 options, I think you should throw something like that in there to at least get people to. to yeah, exa- well, and, and I don't know where that's coming from, because it, it seems like something that the Oscars would nominate. So I, I guess I can kind of understand not wanting to do The Dark Knight for the top five, but not wanting to do Star Wars for a top 10 seems baffling to me. It's uh, I tend to don't look I don't look at uh, nominees within the context of the year. I kind of look at it within the context of history. Mm-hmm. And so it bugs me that an avatar is considered one of the best pictures of 2009 and one of the best pictures the Academy's has ever acknowledged, whereas something like Star Wars is not. And that's how I kind of look at it, which is, yeah, is I guess silly. But we, we approach this from such different different perspectives. Like I really, I couldn't care less about like what does or doesn't get nominated because there's just been, there, there have been too many times when, uh, you know, I, when I was younger would get really excited about a specific movie and then, you know, have my, Oh yeah. D- yeah. Don't, don't get me dashed. wrong. My, uh, I have been heartbroken and I am embittered by it. So mm-hmm. I've just kind of, I've let it go. The Academy Award winning song from frozen, but, uh, it, it still just, it irks me a little bit, but it didn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Another one that, uh, didn't surprise me, but absolutely should be nominated was my best picture of the year creed i thought about that whenever they they came out i mean because they're they only did eight of the ten they only did eight so there are those two slots where they could you know, put in a dark horse hateful eight you might say i'm sorry i couldn't help myself but it and, it, and the thing about it is is even though it didn't have any momentum behind it which kind of surprised me because it seems like something the academy would absolutely latch their teeth into well and my um, understanding is that the the academy like of voting categories actors make up the most of it absolutely. and so you would think with you know, there there seems to have been for for a while some really good uh, momentum behind Sylvester Stallone just as supporting actor, if nothing else. You would think that might be able to help bring it into uh, a category like Best Pictures. Well, well, and but. and what I liked about it, as I as I said to you uh, and on the show last time, is it's not just a Rocky Seven. It's a it's a new self-contained story Mm -hmm. and it seemed like it had all the ingredients for something that the academy would love it's it's socially relevant it brings into the race issue which we'll talk about here in a moment i'm sure but it brings into the race issue which is not divisive but actually inclusive and then as you just mentioned uh the momentum behind sylvester stallone and then i believe the only nomination it got was sylvester stallone and he'll probably win knock on wood Mm -hmm. uh barring some surprise but still, it just it disappoints me that this went from being Creed one to Rocky seven in the Academy's mind. Okay, so I have a question for you that I feel I have to ask. 
Um, well, Chris, I, I didn't think Jurassic World would be nominated, so I'm not that heartbroken about it. Not that. Um, no, uh, Alejandro Gonzalez in your E2s, The Revenant, um, seems to be, I mean, depending on who you ask, who you read, could be a front runner. Uh, it, it won Best Picture Drama in the Golden Globe, um, which isn't necessarily an indicator. I mean, Avatar won Best Picture mm-hmm. its year. Um, but it's, you know, it means that it's in the runnings. I find that kind of amazing um, that A, like a dude might be able to sweep two years in a row and B, like uh, a guy like Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu, who a few years ago was almost in like cinema jail. Like now it seems like he can, he can almost do no wrong. I mean, didn't the Revenant, I believe has the most nominations of, of any. Yes, it, it, it had 12. And, and the thing about it is the Academy one loves a comeback story, but they also, they, they just have their favorites. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. why John Williams has been nominated 50 times. This is his 50th nomination for star Wars. And you and I talked about it. We weren't over the moon with that score. Um, but he's gotten 50 nominations. Meryl Streep's gotten, I believe, bordering 20 if not 20 so they have their favorites and they they like alejandro i i just find it i find it odd uh and and i i mean honestly i'll find it more odd if it sweeps this year which i i really don't think it will i think like i still think spotlight has a pretty good chance it's one of those that kind of it it comes up and goes down as far as uh buzz about Mm -hmm. it but it just it seems like it seems like exactly the type of film that hollywood a lot of times goes for 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 this sort of category and the best version of that too. You and um, you and I have discussed this off mic before is we always somehow anticipate that there'll be, you know, maybe a picture, there's a different best picture from a best director from a this and that. And then it almost universally is no, all the momentum goes behind one picture. Yeah. And so given that it's practically written in stone that Leonardo DiCaprio will win best actor for the Revenant, mm-hmm. I think that is going to be the point of the spear for the Revenant to just, take it home Mm -hmm. because that is that is probably him winning best actor is the one true thing in this race and so whenever you've got something that is definitely going to happen then the rest of the momentum goes behind the picture i don't know we'll see um and speaking of we'll see one of the biggest snubs there were there were a couple of snubs but i'd say probably the most surprising was ridley scott not even being nominated for the martian I mean, um, I guess so. I well, I'm not surprised and I'm not disappointed. Well, yeah, I'm not. I'm not disappointed. I am surprised because leading up to it, uh, Oscar predictors were saying two to one shot he would win. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much because he's never but won that, the best director. But that was also pretty early on, like when. Oh, I, it, I, I'd say right up the day of the nominations, they were saying two to one. Really? Yeah. I, okay. I think it was kind of less. Shows what I know. <laughs> yeah. It was less of a. Uh, it was less of a. This is something he deserves per se. More of a lifetime achievement. Okay. Best like, director Oscar. Like when you could argue when Scorsese got The Departed, which yes. I think was, you know, great film, great direction. But that was what a lot of people said is it was just, you know, he didn't get Raging Bull. He didn't get uh, uh, G- Goodfellas. He didn't get Taxi Driver. You well, got to give it to and him. And so here. there you go. That gets into the politics of the situation is for anyone who read about or saw Ridley Scott's speech post winning the Golden Globe for The Martian, it was kind of uh, unpleasant insofar as he just didn't seem all that grateful. So do you think there's something? I, I would disagree with that. I would say he was just he was his typical Ridley Scott self, which is just like, I'm not going to get too excited. I have this thing that I'm going to do. Like, I love the fact that he fought off the orchestra like mm-hmm. and not even not even combatively just like oh you're doing that thing that's cute i'm going to continue reading this right well this but the, the point being is that oscar voters really like excitability and pleasantness not to say that he didn't deserve it but one thing that really helped jamie fox's 
uh, campaign for winning for Ray was that every speech he gave was just very touching. Mm-hmm. And so you don't get that with Ridley Scott. So you're saying Ridley Scott should have jumped on top of the uh, the chairs or I guess the, the tables and pounced across the tables. Well, to the, it's, the it's one of the – yeah, something like that. He should have gone full Roberto Benigni. But just the point being is Oscar voters, maybe since the Oscars, for those of you who don't know, it's not – critics don't come into it. Audiences don't come into it. It's all industry. And so maybe just within the industry, Ridley Scott has kind of a reputation as just being kind of I, lukewarm and not pleasant. And I, so people don't feel a momentum behind having to give him his best director Oscar. Yeah, I could see that. And and we talked about this back when The, the Martian came out. Ridley Scott's sort of a hit or miss director, honestly. Like he's he's 50-50 at best. Mm-hmm. And, but, it, but it does seem surprising. Even though he is 50-50, he is rightly or wrongly put in that upper echelon. And so him not having a best director, you would think that's something that the Academy would want to correct, but maybe they just don't like him very much. See, this is this is where we differ. I I couldn't care less. Although I'm going to contradict myself right now and say there is one nomination over all others that I am really hopeful uh, this guy wins for the first time, which is ridiculous. I don't know how many times Roger Deakins has been nominated for Best Cinematography, but he's had at least one or two years where he's gone up against himself. Like, was it 2007, maybe? Uh, No Country for Old Men and Assassination of Jesse James by the Robert Coward Ford, which I would say are probably the two most beautiful movies of that year. He's nominated twice. Um, And so he's nominated this year for Sicario, which is a movie that kind of flew under the radar. I was really excited about when it came out. came out right around the same time as The Martian. Um, Didn't didn't really do much... uh, you but could it, say that it, the Martian stole its oxygen. It, it, I mean, it it really did. I mean, the Martian became the thing to talk about, and then it became a an early Oscar buzz sort of sort of movie. And then you just didn't hear anything about Sicario. But it was it was a beautifully shot film, beautifully directed film. Uh, another another stub being uh, Benicio del Toro as supporting actor in in that film. I mean, I think I think very deserving, and and didn't get a didn't get a nod there either. Well, I, I think I'll, I'll I don't mean to break your heart, but given that as you just said there's not a whole lot of momentum behind it right now sicario i i I just don't see him winning this year he'll surely he'll win eventually because they just realize they have to i don't know but it's going to be one of those things it's i think revenant is nominated Mm -hmm. and so if revenant's going to run away it's going to win i mean chivo chivo's kind of got it too like that's I, i i don't disagree with you but i just Deacons is the only one. And honestly, Deacons is probably what broke my heart the most in just realizing how many times he's just shot easily the best looking picture of the year and just never gets the credit that he deserves. So speaking of uh, not getting the credit they deserve, the big story that's that's about the Oscars and will continue to be is the hashtag Oscars so white conversation. Do you think what do you think accounts for that? Uh, I mean, old white dudes are the majority of Oscar voters. Yeah. It, I mean, I mean, I, I, could, I could say that, but then again, you've got something once again, like Creed that it's just, it's, it's right there for everyone to intake. It's not uh confrontational, like straight out of Compton, not getting nominated. A lot of people were upset about mm-hmm. that. Um, but again, that's about gangster rappers. I guess I can see where that would turn off the, uh, potential Oscar voter, but then something like Creed, I just, I don't know if it's just a series of coincidences that wound up, screwing people mm-hmm. who are not uh of caucasian descent or if or I, it's just it just seems baffling to me that this would happen that 
performers would go for oh and forty over the past two years yeah. of not of non or of African American performers. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know what to say to it. It's it, it speaks, I guess, to the you know the thing that I don't like about or don't care for about the Oscars, which is just like it's it just seems so vanilla. No pun intended there at all. But it just it's just it's whatever. Um, so I you know. I don't know. Yeah, I, you, you I can't know. really look at the Oscars. It, like we said a second ago, you can't really look at it as a awarding of the quote unquote best pictures and mm-hmm. best filmmakers. It's more just these are the ones that have momentum behind it within this very cloistered community. Well, and, and I think if I approach the Oscars maybe in more way that you do, which is like it, it stands as a testament of like this is the best of the year, you know, a, a very easy shorthand for that. Like it would be much more offensive to me. Mm-hmm. Um because there were some, I mean, um, in, I, I saw, I saw straight out of Compton. I liked it. I wouldn't say like, I wouldn't say best picture nominee, but, um, you could definitely do, I, you could definitely make the case for best actor, best supporting actor out of that ensemble. There were, there were several great performances. Um, Creed, I can't speak to because I didn't see Creed. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's disappointing, but not, uh, shocking at all. Well, then to that point, do you think that this is kind of apostasy because I'm saying add a category, but do you think that the Oscars should add a best ensemble category for pictures that don't have very strong lead or supporting performances, but they all work together? I don't know. I mean, I the, the Screen Actor Guild does best mm-hmm. ensemble, and I think that fits. I don't know... You know, I, I don't know what that does for the Academy Awards other than make it longer. Well, and, and that certainly doesn't need to happen. Um, so Chris and I will provide predictions in a later episode. But one final thing is one of my favorite part of the Oscars, not to sound uh, glib or uh, morbid, but one of my favorite parts of the Oscars is usually the in memoriam section. And so we've recently lost several entertainment giants. The most notable losses, of course, been both at the age of 69, both the cancer, Alan Rickman and David Bowie. Did either one of those, were those heartbreaking for you or is it shocking? How did you react to that? Um, Both were pretty shocking. I would say Bowie was more heartbreaking than Rickman and only because I feel like I've spent more time with Bowie's work. I mean... Um, mostly in music, but like, I mean, one of my, my first thoughts whenever I heard about it was, well, I got to watch the prestige tonight because like, I, I absolutely love that performance is Nikola Tesla, um, in, in that film, which honestly, I think the first time I saw it, it was like halfway through his little cameo that I realized, Oh, that's David Bowie. And, and then Alan Rickman, like, I mean, I, I like him in several things. I mean, I think he's good as Hans Gruber. I think he's good as Snape. Um, he's never been a guy that's like my, you know, my guy, my actor, he was totally adequate. It is, it is certainly heartbreaking to see him pass so young. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he definitely had more potential ahead of him. It wasn't like a, a Kirk Douglas who's, you know, still kicking. And, um, you know, if, if he passed, it would be sad, but it would be, Oh, look at, look at the career he had. Right. Exactly. And, and I, an icon passing. Yeah. Um, what I'll say about David Bowie is I, we all know mostly from his music. What surprises me both about him as a, as a performer and just as a person is he is a much more sober, approachable person than you would ever think based on his pictures. His pictures <laughs> kind of paint the picture of a very outlandish person. Whereas in interviews, he was very, uh, he's very British. We'll just mm-hmm. put it that way. And so I always appreciate it about him. And what surprised me is the reaction to 
Alan Rickman passing was every bit as universal and mm-hmm. sad as it was for David Bowie, because I wouldn't have thought that Alan Rickman was that popular. Do you, do you think part of that is Harry Potter? And what oh, I he... don't think that's part of it. I think that's, okay. I would say that's 70% of it. And then also Die, die Hard yeah. is him as Hans Gruber. But, that's but, been but very I would say essential. Die Hard's more cult. You know, it's not It's not a totally like... Maybe, uh, but, I, mean, it's, I think... you. I get you know I guess not I would think that too perhaps but maybe mm-hmm. we've discovered that you know Die Hard is indeed something that people cherish yeah I, I maybe so I mean that would make me happy <laughs> absolutely but anyway uh, once again very sad that we lost David Bowie and Alan Rickman as well as Brian Bradford who played uh, Robin Hood and then as well as I believe his name is Brian Haggerty who played Grizzly Adams a lot of a lot of big losses this year but anyway why don't we get on to happier fare. Up next is our review of The Hateful Eight, which was not nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. Did it deserve it, or is it just a mediocre movie? Find out in our review, coming up next. Got room for one more? I ain't too anxious to be handing out rides. Real trusting fella, huh? Not so much. Ain't no way I'm spending a couple of nights under a roof with somebody I don't know who they are. So who are you? Okay, everybody, hear this. I'm taking this woman to hang. Rewards $10,000. That money's mine, boys. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hold on! You think I'm making hoops with that fella or her? That's my problem, boy. I don't know. One of them fellas will kill everybody in here. Now we're talking! Let's slow it down. Let's slow it way down. Quick, how many major motion pictures has Quentin Tarantino directed? When you don't include his next-to-no-budget 16mm feature My Best Friend's Birthday, and combine anything with the word volume in the title into just one entry. If you can't remember, don't worry. Tarantino reminds everyone in the opening credits of his newest film, The Hateful Eight. But not just with a title that implies it, The credits literally begin with text on screen that announces you are about to witness, quote, the eighth film by Quentin Tarantino. It's a Western of sorts presented in super wide 70 millimeter Panavision and set during a bitter Wyoming winter some years after the Civil War. Kurt Russell plays John the Hangman Ruth, a bounty hunter transporting Jennifer Jason Lee's dangerous Daisy Domaru to Red Rock to collect the $10,000 on her head. In route, he picks up a former major in the Union Cavalry. Mark West Warren, played by Samuel L. Jackson, and Chris Mannix, played by Walton Goggins, a Southern sympathizing rabble-rouser supposedly seeking shuttle to Red Rocks to accept his job as town sheriff. When a blasted blizzard bears down on the bunch, the crowded stagecoach is forced to stop halfway at Minnie's haberdashery. Inside, something abnormal seems to be afoot. The rest stop is occupied by several suspicious-looking souls, but the establishment's operators, Minnie and Sweet Dave, are nowhere to be found. From here, Tarantino's classic tropes of long, eloquent dialogue littered with profanities and quick, jarring violence splattered with excessive amounts of viscera play out for nearly three hours. Hunter, I'm curious. As a filmmaker, Tarantino is generally known for stories that span multiple timelines and numerous locales. The Hateful Eight, on the other hand, is nearly, though not entirely, linear and takes place almost exclusively in one location. Does this feel like a veteran filmmaker honing his craft even further through a self-imposed litany of limitations? 
Or does it seem to you that the scope is an unusually wordy way to phone in a feature film? Ah, and speaking of scope, much has been made about the movie being shot and distributed in the super wide and super expensive 70mm format. But do you believe The Hateful Eight is a Western that warrants a whopping widescreen? Chris, um, a phrase that springs to mind is a total greater than the sum of its parts. I love that phrase, but this movie is the exact opposite of that. This is a movie in which the parts are greater than the sum total. I would argue, as this movie demonstrates, I would argue that no one is better at directing a scene and perhaps writing a scene right now than Quentin Tarantino. And this movie ably demonstrates that. But whenever you assemble those scenes into a movie, it becomes overblown excessively vulgar, excessively violent. I think the best way to describe this movie is kind of an inversion of the classic Thomas Hobbes phrase. It is nasty, brutish, and very, very, very long. Mm -hmm. And so I think your first, your questions kind of all go together. I don't really see this as a director um, putting self-imposed limitations and expanding his craft, nor do I see it as phoning it in. I really kind of think that Quentin Tarantino is too arrogant to do that. I don't think <laughs> I don't really think that he wants to hone his craft because he already thinks he's at the peak of his craft. And the 70 millimeter and the three hour running time demonstrate that is in essence, he is the Weinstein company's breadbasket. And yeah. so they will pretty much give him whatever they want or whatever he wants. And so he wanted a three hour running time. He wanted 70 millimeter and he wanted just an, a cavalcade of violence and destruction that by the end of it, we won't get into spoilers yet, but by the end of it was just extremely troubling. It, it, I, you know, I would love to disagree with you on this. I, I was very excited going to this movie, but I, I pretty much agree with everything you said. This is, it, it's a weird, like it, it definitely feels like a Quentin Tarantino movie. You couldn't go into it and not know that he made it. You know, it's it's not that, but it's it just feels it feels like an exercise more than anything to me. You know, it's a it's a long, violent, vulgar chamber piece. And I think that's the thing that I find most fascinating and troubling and weird. And like, I, I have so many questions about why do you you know, you wait your entire career to make a 70 millimeter Western epic and then you make this. Right. You know what I mean? Like and I, I think. You know, I, I have seen some people praise him for uh, the uh, the brilliance of shooting in 70 millimeter and setting it all in tight places. And I would agree with that if I felt like he actually was using it to any real like effect. But um, I mean, I think somebody like Paul Thomas Anderson with the master, he shot 65 presented in, presented in 70. And that movie takes place inside locations a lot, but it's also takes place in many locations and it's, it's using faces and sort of um, you know, it's, it's using the format in a way that hadn't really been used before um, or, or hadn't really been used before, or at least conventionally used. And Tarantino, it feels like he's not really like this feels like the closest thing to Reservoir Dogs that he's made since Reservoir Dogs. Sure. And uh, yeah, very much a, almost like a play. Mm -hmm. of a, and he's actually turning this into a play. And yeah. so it may play better in that format. But the 70 millimeter, to your point, it didn't add or detract to me. I, I will still argue that uh, given that this was a film with a small locale and eight characters, actually more than eight characters, it would have been extremely difficult to block mm -hmm. at, without the audience getting confused. And Again, he's a very gifted 
blocker and he's a very gifted framer blocking and, and tackling that's but, his. yes exactly blocking and tackling and shooting and so i was very impressed by the the direction and the camera work and mm-hmm. the performances but once again it's going out of this movie i don't know what it what it wanted to say and mm-hmm. what i think it wanted to say is it bothers me in, incredibly so um to your so to your question no i don't think it needed 70 millimeter i don't think that added anything to it I, it really just feels like an exercise in ego mm-hmm. okay well and exercise is a good like th- this is the thing that i think bothers me more than anything is tarantino has said i'm only making 10 movies and so if if he was a i mean I, this is probably a bad example because soderbergh has said that he stopped making movies as well but when S- steven soderbergh was working he was making like two movies a year mm-hmm. you know if he was a steven soderbergh who can experiment because he's making you know he's so prolific he's putting out so many films it would be one thing but for a man to say i'm only making 10 films like they all need to be great. I, I feel like you, you run the risk of like, if you have a real stinker in there, it's going to, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, make your, uh, make your catalog just look that much worse because you just don't have that many. Well, you just, and you just said stinker. Do you think that you would say that this was a stinker? It's it, no, I, I would not go that far. Like I still, I still enjoyed it, but it was also, it was a disappointment because it is, it is the eighth film by Quentin Tarantino. We only get two more of these. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I just, you know, especially because they were promoting it as it's, you know, see it, see it in this roadshow 70 millimeter presentation and, and all of this, like it, that, that felt like such a um, masturbatory sort of um, sort of thing where it's just like, okay, well I can shoot in 70. So I am going to, it doesn't matter if it really fits or does anything. And, and it's ultimately like, it would be, I think it would be one of those that if he had a huge, you know, if, if he made 35 movies, I think it could be one that people would go back and say, you know, you know, it's actually sort of a gym, mm-hmm. the hateful eight it's, it's weird. It's different from, you know, what, what he typically did. Uh, but it's, it has some interesting, you know, it, it, is dealing with some tough questions in racial relations in just, I think everyone's prejudice because uh, one of the things that I do really like about this movie is the way that, um, and, and it's very Tarantino and it's something that I know he's been actually called out for quite a bit by, you know, someone like, like Spike Lee in the way that he handles race, the way that he handles um, to a lesser extent, gender and, and those sorts of things. Um, but I, I think it's very interesting the way that um, that he approaches it here, because he basically creates these characters who you have good guys and bad guys in the beginning. And by the end, they're all sort of neutralized into basically the same camp. You have people who are worse than others, but everyone you you see their their prejudices come through. Right. And I admired that with the movie. You know, the title is The Hateful Eight. And this is a little interesting factoid. Apparently, the Samuel Jackson character was originally supposed to be Django. It was going to be Django doing that. And then fortunately, that didn't happen. I think he realized that Django is not a pure character, but he is a protagonist and he Mm -hmm. needs to remain a protagonist. And then the the Samuel Jackson character, like the rest of the characters, they're the Hateful Eight. They're all bad people. And so while I did admire that, the ultimate message of, you know, we're all kind of once once we take away the veneer of civilization, we all wind up in this kind of barbarism. While I very much admire that. 
without getting into spoilers, the movie almost validates that at the end. And mm-hmm. that's why I would bore. It's almost immoral, I feel, because it valid. It doesn't just say, hey, we're all barbarians when you get down to it. It says that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It feels like it says that's a good well, thing. There, there's I, so you bring up this this barbarism and this sort of the there. Tim Roth's character has a pretty interesting little speech pretty early on mm-hmm. when when he's introduced. If you're found guilty. The people of Red Rock will hang you in the town square. And as the hangman, I will perform the execution. And if all those things end up taking place, that's what civilized society calls justice. However, if the relatives and the loved ones of the person you murdered were outside that door right now and after busting down that door they drug you out into the snow and hung you up by the neck that would be frontier justice to me it doesn't matter what you did when i hang you i'll get no satisfaction from your death it's my job i hang you in red rock i move on to the next town i hang someone else there you know, I, I really liked that speech when when it played out. And it goes on even a little further where, you know, he talks about the only way for justice to be justice is if it is sort of cold and uncalculated and disaffected. Like the, the, the person who is bringing it does not um, does not get any joy out of it. It is just it is done because it has to be done. Well, and to that point and actually rewatching or rehearing that rather. It, it has more weight whenever you know what finally happens. It's actually a more interesting sequence. But the point that being made is when it's cold and disaffected and has no joy in it, be it Quentin Tarantino has never directed a violent scene, certainly not in this movie, where he is not very much having a blast. Well, and that's pun intended blowing people away. And, and, and that's why I bring this up is I'm I like I love it was just it was such a great little nugget of a speech that. Um, feels a bit different than what you typically expect of, of Tarantino. And then by the end, he completely undermines all of that in, in more ways than just the violence, but in, um, you know, in other things that I won't get into. And it, it, it was really disappointing to me. Like, I don't, I do not understand character motivation for a lot of the characters in this film. Their motivation was basically, this is what Quentin Tarantino wanted to see. Cause he thought it would be fun. Yeah. Um, the idea of frontier justice, we're definitely going to talk about this movie once we get to hail C- Caesar, but the idea of frontier justice was much better explored in the Coen brothers true grit mm-hmm. in which the law was not there for her. And so she took it into her own hands, but at the same time, at no point in time was it celebratory. She defeated the ba- spoiler alert. She defeated the bad guy, but it wasn't something that, she wound up being covered in mm-hmm. buckets of blood and the music was really exciting and everyone's having a good time. It was a, it was kind of a, it's a somber moment, but one that needed to happen. That's not the case in this. It's very, not, very exciting that people are getting their heads blown off. Yeah. And, and here's another thing is so watching through the movie, there was never a point where I was like, Oh man, this is, you know, it's, it's nearly three hours. I think with the intermission, it's right at, or just beyond three hours. Um, it's not necessarily a movie where I ever felt like it was long or dragging. I I've spoken with several people who thought like in the beginning, it was kind of slow. I really like the setup, but I like the setup. I think partially because I think it's setting up something that never happens. So then it's, it's only in, you know, that last third, it starts to slow down for me. And then you get to the very end and it's just sort of like, it, it feels very just like 
oh, that was, it, it is a, almost a three hour punchline of sorts. Well, and so, yeah, never drug. The only, re- the only time I wanted to leave wasn't because I was bored. I wanted to leave because it was getting really bothersome and disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, at what point, uh, at what point did it start to get, because I, well, you know, I've defended Tarantino's violence mm-hmm. in the past because I think some, he uses it in interesting ways. I thought in Django, he actually like, it gets excessive at times, but it's one of the first times that I think he is also used it to great effect to actually create something that's visceral in a different sense than, than he normally goes for visceral and actually making right. you feel it before in, we get to, before we get to spoilers, cause it's it, I, in order to answer that, I'll have okay. to get into spoilers, but I will say this is that Quentin Tarantino is probably the most moral filmmaker right now, but his morality is that vengeance is a good thing and preferably done as, violently as possible mm-hmm. vengeance is not a dish best served cold it's a dish best served blood red almost as played as comedy mm-hmm. and i i just find that very upsetting well i i i find it upsetting in this context like i think in something like kill bill it's it's fine because it's you know it, it, kill bill is this movie that is very it never feels like it's in any way part of any sort of real kill bill's world. a cartoon yeah, yeah it, it very literally like you you even have a moment that's very violent that it transforms into an anime at, at one point and you're you know he's playing with all sorts of um you know when when she goes to see Pyme, it's this like sort of 16 millimeter look there's switching between black and white and color you know it's you're very aware that you're watching a movie that whole time um here it's not necessarily grounded in reality but it's it's close enough that it feels you know, you don't have that detachment that you have in in something like kill bill um and and i think you know, I, I got into an argument with someone um, after seeing this over whether or not like this is more disgusting and more visceral and more uh, visceral, maybe just uh, more, you know, blood everywhere than Kill Bill. And I, I feel like it is or at least it's more gross in, in its effect. Um, there's just there's a lot of it and it just feels like most of it is for for the fun of it. Right. Well, and exactly. It's kind of like watching a high school student film and the college student film is they're trying to make a statement but boy howdy we sure want to shock the rest of the class by how bloody and violent we can get it and so it's one of those things he's extremely talented quentin tarantino but um he just like i said feels like a student filmmaker he's just trying to shock people uh so chris you and i have uh shot this movie up uh, one side and down the other but as you said you didn't hate it and i didn't hate it either per se i just found it disturbing so what did you like about it the i i would say there's only one thing that i absolutely love about this movie and that is jennifer jason lee you know both the the character daisy Domaru on the page and then her presentation of the character i i loved like she's she's sort of comedic relief she's sort of she's arguably the most repulsive character in the film but actually like um, I think the most well-rounded as well in, in many ways. And she's, she's a whole lot of fun um, on screen with just the way that she kind of interacts with each character. She, she is a real um, she, she likes to be provocative and um, brings a, she's the only time that it really kind of brings that lighthearted touch that maybe something like kill bill has more of that helps, helps the medicine of the, the, the blood and violence mm-hmm. go down. Um, other, other than that, like, I mean, I think, I think the cast overall is very good. Yeah. Um, I, I like Jennifer Jason Lee. One thing that I've always admired about Quentin Tarantino is that he will find in many ways, either former stars or obscure actors, the most, you know, 
famous, of course, being the John Travolta in Pulp Fiction case. Mm-hmm. But he'll find more obscure actors and then bring him back into the four. And Jennifer Jason Lee being a yeah. kind of an 80s icon coming and, back and, and doing I, a great job. I really hope this does something for her career to get. I mean, if that's if that's what she wants, I don't know if she's I know she's been doing screenwriting and other things as well. But, you know, if she if she's looking for roles, I hope she gets them. And what you got to say about all this? What I got to say about John Reese Ravens? He's absolutely right. Me and one of them fellows is in cahoots. We're just waiting for everybody to go to sleep. That's what we're going to kill y'all. I liked Jennifer Jason Lee in this as well, but actually the person who stood out the most to me was Walton Goggins. Mm-hmm. Um, have, I don't believe you've seen The Shield. Is that correct? I have not seen The Shield, but I have seen Justified. Okay. Which, I mean, is is another, you know, I, I think he's the other standout, but he's basically playing stupid Boyd Crowder right. in, in this. But, yeah, exactly. But he, him just, he's just so good. The thing about, yeah, uh, yeah. about The Shield is The Shield was almost like the Sicario mm-hmm. in that it, it was overwhelmed by The Wire and coming right after uh sopranos but it was a fantastic show and he was great in it and i really he's he plays this a vile character they're all vile but he plays this vile character but manages to make him somewhat lovable that's i mean that's exactly boyd crowder and justified as well he is he is a uh he's a very evolving character he starts as a kind of hate-mongering skinhead preacher and by the end he's you know trying to be a big-time drug dealer but you kind of the way that he uh, just spews the dialogue and it's, you know, justified is based on an Elmore Leonard, uh, short story and, and series of stories. Um, and it, it has very much of that in it. And that's, you know, I think something Quentin Tarantino and you, know, he made Jackie Brown based on rum punch. He loves that sort of dialogue. And so he fits so well in a Quentin Tarantino world. Um, it, it, that casting was perfect. I mean, he was in Django, but only briefly. And I thought it was too little, like this is, this is the right amount of him. And I'm, I'm glad that he got a, a juicy, meaty role here. And then a, another guy with a juicy, meaty role and kind of a Jennifer Jason Lee, a Quentin Tarantino, a perfect Quentin Tarantino actor in that he used to be an 80s icon and, you know, is now uh, in a movie here is Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. Some friends said, so how cool is Kurt Russell on a Jack Burton to Snake scale? And they said, well, wait a minute, which one's the zero? <laughs> which one's the 10? And he said, no, you don't understand. He's never not cool. So what kind of cool is he? So what kind of cool was Kurt Russell in this movie? You know, I, I don't, I, I would have to see this, this, uh, scale in front of me. You know, I, I really need an infographic to, to put it out. Like, I think, I think he's good. I think he's very good. I honestly, if we're talking, uh, Kurt Russell and Quentin Tarantino movies, I think I liked him better in death proof. Um, he's, I think he gets a little lost in the ensemble here. Um, he is, he is very good. Um, he has an interest. His character does have a, an interesting arc of sorts, but it's not really explored that much. You know, he starts as sort of the one, he's the white hat character, if you will, in, in the Western. And you very soon, once they arrive at minis realize, okay, he has prejudices just like everyone else, Mm -hmm. but they don't from, from there, they don't explore that too much other than like some offhanded dialogue of him, uh, you know, making a racist joke or that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. It's less the character, more just Kurt Russell's presence as an actor that Mm -hmm. contributes it. And speaking of presence, someone who has quite a bit, he's kind of, you might say Quentin Tarantino's John Wayne, except that he's usually not in the lead in any movies. He's kind of the go-to supporting actor is Samuel Jackson. How did he do as the, I would say the primary protagonist in this picture, the lead, you might say. Okay. Can we, let's, can we kind of curve this into spoilers? 
Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, spoiler time. Okay. Um, we're, we're going to get and spoilers about at some point. Check, check the show notes if you would like to skip ahead to the beer recommendation or special features. But uh, Samuel L. Jackson, I think he does a really good job here. I think he's, you know, he's so good at delivering Tarantino dialogue. I mean, just... You know, you go back to Pulp Fiction and and those um, sort of soliloquies that he has when he's about to assassinate someone or um, even when he gets a little introspective, like in the diner. He's he's very good with that. And he's very good here. Um, But he also that character um, brings in the thing that I think bugs me the most about this film. And that is he gives this great little speech. He's trying to provoke. We haven't even mentioned Bruce Dern. I guess, you know, he doesn't say much, but just his presence is mm-hmm. actually like uh, he he does a lot by just kind of sitting there and giving looks. Um, I, I really liked the dynamic between those two. There was almost a and Bruce Dern, that that character, Sandy Smithers, sort of surprises you um, by uh, by the end of his his role in the film. But that story about, let's say, the dingus story, Mm -hmm. um, classic Tarantino sort of dialogue, uh, classic Tarantino storytelling, I feel like it would have been so much more effective if – it was just a story. If it was more, and and it's it's beautifully told. You know, um, oh, that is. You don't show it. You don't shoot you, it. You don't show it. You just you just mm-hmm. shoot the two of them. You've got Silent Night, mm-hmm. the Bob's playing in the background, and you know that that would have been such a great moment between those two characters. I, I agree, and that kind of. I mean, we are to, of course talking about the filmmaker who decides. That as opposed to just showing something, he's going to start narrating it just because mm-hmm. he always has to do little quirks. Even if you're enjoying oh yourself, you're gosh. having a good time, he just throws in his little quirks that just screw things up. Yeah. That the the shooting it, filming the Dinga story didn't bother me as much as him narrating vast swaths Which, of this and, and that's and that's where it goes from like oh that was unnecessary to like why why are we doing this anytime Quentin Tarantino shows up in his own films which is most of the time mm-hmm. it it's really hard to get back on track like he's just he completely derails his own story and even when he's not on screen you know here he's just narrator um but one one more thing on on the dingus story and then we can we can move on i was looking through because the the screenplay was up for you know for your consideration best original screenplay and so i was kind of just skimming through it and when it gets to the dingus story and i i was curious exactly how that was laid out whether it was always intended to have this sort of flashback flash forward sort of thing and when it first goes to the flashback in the script, it says something to the effect of like, and then we cut to wide Wyoming landscape in super 70 millimeter. You know, he's he's masturbating on the page there. <laughs> just just like so proud of himself in like we're going to go from this, you know, small little confined area to like the grandest vista. And I would argue that he didn't accomplish even that too well. And, you know, like it just it looks fine. But it's not like it just doesn't have that, you know, it's not Monument Valley. It's not it doesn't have that grand scale to it that he expects, you know, because I'm doing it in 70 millimeter, it's it's going to feel epic. You know, that has it that, that, that gives me that's an interesting thought, because you mentioned Monument Valley. The thing about whenever John Ford would shoot Monument Valley is it was almost 
inevitably kind of setting up another scene. It was always shot subtly mm-hmm. and nothing, there's nothing subtle about Quentin Tarantino. And so when you're saying something that's that doing a story, that's that distracting for lack of better words, you're not even going to notice the Wyoming setting. Cause you're just so unnerved by what's happening. Yeah. And so speaking of unnerved, literally and figuratively, were you as bothered as I was by the Jennifer Jason Lee being hun? portion of the movie that just really I, that really disturbed me how I, much how how happy and exciting it was supposed to be okay so i think i was numb to it by this point honestly like i i was talking to somebody about it a day or two later and i forgot that was how she died like that's that's how like by that point it was just like i had almost put up the shield of like there's been so much violence and so much and and then as we're talking about it, it kind of came back but like it's I mean, at that point, I was just I was ready for it to be done. You know, I, it was the writing was on the wall by that point. By I think by the time. Um, well, let, let's just get into it. Another another character who we haven't mentioned, who comes pretty late, who's his name shows up in the the opening credits. So, you know, he's there, but it's sort of, you know, you're two and a half hours in and or, or so. And finally, Channing Tatum shows up. And is quickly meets his demise, you know, by by that point or maybe even a little earlier, like the the vomit is the place where I started to not have fun Mm -hmm. because it was so excessive. And just he's playing this joke where Jennifer Jason Lee's character gets bloodier and bloodier and bloodier and bloodier and bloodier as the movie goes on. And uh, that's that kind of stuff we talked about with Kill Bill. That is almost acceptable if your movie's a cartoon. Mm-hmm. But if your movie is trying to make some sort of political statement about race and gender yeah. and all these other things, you're just kind of thinking, you've you, th- this is not the way to make a statement. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're, you're a teenager, mate. You're, you're a teenager trying to gross people out in the guise of making a statement. Yeah. So when his brain matter is splattered all yeah. over her already bloody face and just sticking From to blood her. vomit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's I think that's where I completely like checked out on the violence and was just like, OK, this is I I there is no way anyone gets out of this alive. You the, And at that point, there's no suspense to it. It's just, OK, how do the the rest of the people die. Yeah. Well, I think the reason that the the hanging scene bothered me the most is one the music swelling up. It's 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 treated mm-hmm. as a, an exciting, happy a happy ending almost. Mm-hmm. And then you have the racist southerner and then in many ways the racist uh union officer kind of cuddled together in a bloody mess reading Abraham Lincoln's letter. And what kind of what is the statement there is that I, I I don't even want to venture to guess. It's just well, look, we can get along together, provided it's in the guise of vengeance. I I don't know, man. I mean, it's it's a because I think you could very easily argue that if Samuel L. Jackson isn't the worst, you know, as far as morality goes, isn't the worst character in in the film. He's he's one of the worst. He's he's certainly not as bad as he was in Django. I mean, Django, he's just like the right. most evil character on screen there, but there, there's just so much that, and I'm not saying that you need black hat, white hat. Um, I keep going back to that, but you know, it's, it's a Western it's, it's fitting. You don't, you don't need clear lines, but I think when you're trying, like you said, when you're trying to make that statement, it becomes much more difficult when you set, you know, give a character who is so like, there's a lot of concerning elements to exactly why he does what he does, because I, you know, some of it is certainly driven by being a black man in this, you know, post-Civil War society where it's just, 
you know, he, he became, you know, a bounty hunter partially because it was one of the only things he could do. And, uh, because he was good at killing. And, um, so like that, that I find interesting, but then the more you learn about his backstory and how, uh, sort of tarnished it is. And, and he, he has, I guess he has no moral compass. Right. Well, and yeah. And, and yeah, you don't need black hats and white hats, but at the same time, you do need to go to a movie scene that no, having, we kind of talked about this with maps of the stars is I just don't know what Quinn Tarantino wanted out of me. And so I think all he wanted out of me was just to sit there, shut up and get shocked. And in that case, he did a good job. Yeah. And, and I think, but that's, that's the thing is like, this is, it's such a weird, I don't know. I, I think in, in setting and scope and all of that, it is such a, an odd, like, this is all you wanted me to experience for three hours. You know, it doesn't, he doesn't take you on a ride while also giving you the violence. Like the violence is the main, uh, it it is the entree of this Mm -hmm. movie. Whereas in, in his other films, I mean, you have, you have sprawling landscapes and you have all of these other, you know, multiple, multiple stories going on, multiple characters and not just in like a, I mean, because here it's more like, okay, we get this back guy's backstory and this guy's backstory. And, and it sort of, you know, it all plays out in classic Tarantino dialogue, which I, I have no problem with, but then it's just like, and we're just going to end it all in massacre. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of feel like he wanted to make a statement with this picture, but the statement he wanted to make, whatever political statement was, it was overwhelmed by the other statement, which was, look how cool I am. Yeah. Which, which is what, I mean, Tarantino, he, I mean, especially if you, I, he's a guy who, and I think we'll get into this a lot more in Mm -hmm. special features, but he's a guy who I have to divide him from his work, you know, him as a person from his work, because, uh, he is so narcissistic in just like, he thinks he is, maybe not the greatest filmmaker working, but at least a, he has his own little corner where he is the greatest filmmaker working. Well, Chris, um, much like watching hateful eight, I'm kind of exhausted. I don't know about you, but I need a drink. Um, <laughs> it seems appropriate and actually would be very helpful at this point in time. Uh, bloody Mary, or at least a bloody Mary infused beer. You think that's uh bloody Mary infused beer. I would not drink. I don't think I don't, um, I think Budweiser makes something like that or maybe it's, the, oh uh, yeah, the, you're right. The, 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 uh, yeah, I, they have the Limerita and the Clamato and the, but I'm yeah. guessing that's not your choice. Not, today. not my choice. I've had a couple of those and not my, not my thing. Uh, what I'm going to go with here is, uh, there's a little bit of a connection or I guess a couple, um, you know, hateful eight takes place in Wyoming and this recommendation comes from the state's northern neighbor, Montana. Uh, it's Moose Drool by Big Sky Brewing Company in Missoula, Montana, which is a, uh, you know, multi sort of sweet brown ale. Uh, not my favorite, but you, you can find it a lot of places. So it's, it's one of those, like typically if, if you go to a place and they've got your average, you know, Bud Miller Boulevard taps, uh, one of the first things in, you know, the more craft, uh, section they might have is, is Moose Drool. So it's, it's one of those that, uh, you know. I don't, I don't mind. Not my favorite, uh, which I, I feel fits in very nicely with, uh, with hateful eight here. Absolutely. And actually I don't even need an excuse to enjoy a muse drool. I, I, I fancy that beer myself. Well, the hateful eight is currently available at a cineplex near year, but I'm not sure it's going to be doing that much longer. However, I think it's fine if you watch it at home, this isn't something that you necessarily need to go see at the theater. Yeah. Which is, which is also, we didn't even talk about that, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't think you lose a ton of the experience with it on a, on a smaller screen. Yeah. You don't lose the experience, but you do save a fair amount of time. So if you've seen it, please tell us your thoughts at hello at war starts at midnight.com. Chris, I'm anticipating we're going to get a lot of 
hatefulness from some QT fans, and I'm kind of looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, bring it on. You know, and if email isn't your thing, you can actually call us and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. Ring the red telephone at 484-4CINEMA. Stick around, folks. We'll be back after the break to discuss Talkin' Tarantino. Okay, before we get to special features, just one little uh, house cleaning note. Uh, our next episode, we are celebrating our first anniversary with a review of The Revenant, which is sort of fitting because we actually started with a uh, review of Alejandro Gonzalez Inurritu's Birdman. So uh, kind of nice, but we're also planning the following week uh, on February 12th, we're going to release an episode that we're calling Episode Zero, and that is a review of the Pal Pressburger film, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. And I assume most of you out there listening have, if, even if you've heard of the life and death of Colonel Blimp, um, you probably haven't seen it. And so we would encourage you, you've got about three weeks now to seek it out. You know, you can rent it on iTunes, uh, check it out at the library, do whatever it is that you need to do. I think you're really going to enjoy this review. I think you're really going to enjoy this movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this review. That's life and death of Colonel Blimp. Uh, seek it out. You have been forewarned. It is coming. Um, you don't want to be left out on this. When thinking of Quentin Tarantino, one word springs instantly to mind. Obnoxious. Okay, two words spring instantly to mind. The second word is rock star. That's two words, Hunter. <laughs> no, it isn't. Rock and star. Two words. Rock hyphen star. One word. Bull hyphen sh- Anyway, on the one hand, Tarantino is the trailblazing rock star of the film world, who defiantly deploys vulgarity, casts unknowns, rewrites history, or gives prominence to the worst actor alive, himself. On the other hand, he's that obnoxious movie geek who works behind the counter at a vinyl-slash-DVD-slash-comic book store. You know the guy. The dude whose knowledge of obscure films transcends your own and will gleefully let you know about it. This is not just his personality. It pretty much describes his films. Nobody makes movies like Quentin Tarantino. Each is a steroid injection to the heart of freshness, ferocity, and F-bombs plus a heavy dose of homages to movies that belong in the kung fu section of your local thrift store. Tarantino is an enigmatic maverick, an enigmaverick, you might say, who established the persona of the 90s rebel filmmaker. But unlike his peers, he's never looked back. The storyline of his indie brethren goes something like this. A. Go mainstream with a reboot or sequel. Or B. Continue making personal films, but be confined to the art house. Tarantino, on the other hand, didn't go mainstream, the mainstream went Tarantino. Now, after finishing the eighth film by Quentin Tarantino, we are left with only two more. 
he has pledged to make 10 films and retire. So we must ask ourselves, will Quentin Tarantino ever grow up? And for that matter, do we even want him to? Chris, Tarantino has but two movies left. So what do you want to see? Another motion picture filled with provocation, profanity, homage, and mild profundity? Or maybe something more traditional? Perhaps an Oscar Beatty biopic about a transgendered violinist with Down syndrome set during the Holocaust? Or maybe a mainstream blockbuster like the much pined for reboot of Beverly Hills Cop, only now with Kevin Hart? Oh, God. Okay. Uh, first of all, I would just like to say your thrift store must be much cooler than mine because my thrift store does not have a Kung Fu se- section. Um, well, in theory, the theoretical thrift okay. store. Okay. So if I have to choose between these three options, I guess. It, 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 in true Quentin Tarantino fashion, each is more outlandish than the last. <laughs> the I, I do not I do not want to see his Oscar Beatty biopic. Um, because I don't trust him with that sort of material. I do think, I mean, honestly, if he's only got two left, I do think it would be interesting to see him try, like, like you say, the Beverly Hills Cop reboot with Kevin Hart, um, because it would, it, it would be transcendently Tarantino still. And so I think, you know, with, I, I would just, I would love to see what he would do with a reboot because it wouldn't be, it it wouldn't be phoned in. It wouldn't be tongue in cheek. It would be its own thing for sure. And in many ways, that he might be more inspired to do that because he's not making a Quentin Tarantino movie. He's mm-hmm. making a blank movie. And what's interesting about that is I wasn't just being a smartass with Beverly Hills Cop. He actually mentioned about ten years ago that he had a story idea for a Beverly Hills Cop sequel. I guess whenever Eddie Murphy was you know going to be in it, mm-hmm. and people thought, well, wait a minute, Quentin Tarantino doing a Beverly Hills Cop movie—that's insane. And he's done that a couple of times. I believe that some of the momentum behind filming Casino Royale was he wanted to do a 1960s set Casino Royale. Hmm. He also mentioned a Friday the 13th sequel he wanted to do. And then I think this is interesting. He wanted to do a Godzilla movie where Godzilla was worshipped as a god by the people of Japan because he continues to mm-hmm. uh, protect their island nation. So the point being is that he's he's no he's not shy about sharing his ideas about these different franchises. And I find it fascinating that you would actually be okay with him doing that given he only has two left i mean it, it's not going to be more disappointing than the hateful eight and and for the record i like the hateful eight i did not love it i certainly didn't love it as a tarantino film and as one of the ten mm-hmm. um i think this would be interesting this would be a uh you know it, it would be definitely not be what you typically get out of tarantino but i i think there's no way that it's not going to have i mean his his dialogue for a beverly hills cop movie would be would be good would be interesting you know a motivated eddie murphy and i'm not sure eddie murphy can be motivated anymore but a motivated eddie murphy doing his thing with quentin tarantino doing his thing Mm -hmm. that not only the movie but the making of that movie the making of that movie might be more interesting than the movie itself get the hearts of darkness of (laughs) yes exactly the hearts of darkness of beverly hills cop uh so but but the point being is that you would almost rather see a quote non tarantino movie from him next depending on um, what it is i, I mean the it, that's such a weird because the other the other option is he just keeps doing what he's doing and the thing that i like about what he's been doing is like they're all identifiably tarantino films but they're also their own thing in a lot of ways you know like kill bill volume is one and two the first first volume is sort of his samurai movie the second volume is sort of a western in and mm-hmm. of itself um Death Proof, which is a, I think people would consider minor Tarantino, um, still a great fun. Is that one of the eight? It is one of the eight because Kill Bill is considered one 
Volume one and volume two are considered one. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Death Proof is considered one of the eight. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, that that's a little in, in line with like not what you would expect. And, you know, sort of a, it starts very kind of slow in one location, but then becomes this, by the end, it, it gets so exciting that, um, and, and just executed so well. You know, you were talking about Tarantino's ability to direct staging that sort of thing his ability to direct action is pretty damn good Mm -hmm. also i don't know he just he sort of has his trademark but has i think he has moved up until this movie he has moved forward in a different way that you just don't expect um you know inglorious bastards was completely different from what we'd seen before. Django was completely different than what we'd seen before. Um, this is the first, hateful. It was the first time that it felt like, okay, we've seen this with reservoir dogs and et cetera. Um, so I don't know if I had to choose, I think maybe I would take Beverly Hills cop only because it's a sure shot that, you know, you're going to get something weird and different. You've, you've set parameters. Like I mentioned with hateful eight, you've set parameters for him, but that he has to work within. And so it'll be interesting to see how he reacts to that, but it's not going to, you know, he's also going to have to in some way pay off the film. But at the same time, I, I imagine if he wrote a script for uh, Beverly Hills cop, it would never get made. Well, yeah, well maybe what needs to happen. You said wrote a script is maybe that's what he needs to happen is he needs to write it. Someone else directs it or, you know, something like that. Like at which I don't think has happened since uh true romance, true romance or, or, yeah. or did, was it true romance or uh well, no, actually natural born killers. He only had the story. He didn't write the, the screenplay is my understanding. And he sold the story for like, a okay, dollar, that's a right. Yeah. Stone. And he was, and he was yeah, pretty upset with the end result which yeah. is funny because it's kind of funny to think about a fight between Oliver Stone and Quentin Tarantino about, well, that's too outlandish. I mean, how does either, <laughs> where does either one of them come from to say that, that you're going too far there? Um, so you pointed out, and I, I agree in some ways, but you pointed out that each Quentin Tarantino film up until the hateful eight is somewhat different from the last. But with that said, they've all had a through line ever since kill bill volume one. And that is revenge. Do you think that that is I, that that's that's his thing right now? Not mm-hmm. his thing right mm-hmm. now. That's that that would be how I define his thing. More than fifty percent of his output is about revenge. We've already talked about this a little with the hateful eight, but does it bother you that he has made the idea of revenge, not retribution, not justice, but revenge, so mainstream and so integral to his work? Um, you know, it doesn't bother me. It, it you know, and honestly, it hasn't really bothered me up until this film. I I think he's playing with revenge and, and he's playing with it very gleefully. So that, that can be worrisome, but he's, he's played with it within a context that has been digestible for me up until now. So I would, I would say no, but, um, here, I mean, with, with hateful eight, he was reveling a bit too much in it. Uh, well, and so I think, yeah, I think it's almost the, uh, the victim of the violence because in kill bill, it was like we said a second ago, a cartoon and in glorious bastards, it was Nazis but at the same time, even going back to that, it, it bothered me that we were in this real setting and then it was just – like I said, it's it's all about just let's mm-hmm. gleefully kill people. It's not about justice. And then uh, Django, it was the American South and, and slave well, owners. And, and I think he – I mean I I think most of the criticism of Django's revenge and violence comes in that third act when he just – I guess spoilers for Django – burns down the house and kills, slaughters everyone. Mm-hmm. But – up until that point, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things that I feel like it it's kind of earned at that point because he's he's been 
Well, not totally restrained. I, I wouldn't say that, but he's... He has been chained, you might say. Oh, God. Um, he The violence that he presents up until that point, there are, there are these little pockets of real violence, violence that feels uh, not like the cartoony thing, but something, and, and to with the right intent as well. Like I, I think about when they're on their way to Candyland, and you see the, uh, the slave chained up on, on the tree and uh, they're, they're whipping him. And there's this just like uh, it's a moment that sort of transcends what Tarantino had done with violence up until that point. That's it really, true, yeah. it really, really kind of makes your stomach churn in in a way that he's trying to make your stomach churn, not not trying to disgust you and like, oh, hey, look at how, but like actually like look at how f***ed up this is. And, you know, I love that you brought that up because it shows that he is capable of directing violence in a way that that gives weight to the violence mm-hmm. in a Martin Scorsese-esque way of saying, you know, people are getting hurt yeah. here. And so it bothers me that we have that one moment in Django, but then the rest of his oeuvre is, ho-ho, look, it's, it's kind of funny the way people are getting blown away and so what bothers me about revenge pictures in general but this particular revenge in quentin tarantino movies is it's it's more than eye for an eye it's more like head for an eye Mm -hmm. the the bad characters do something bad and then you the audience are on the good guy side yeah you are you are on the good guy side and you say you know what i want Django to Mm -hmm. get retribution or i want brad pitt to get retribution and then they go back and then they you know shove a grenade in their mouth or something like that it's Mm -hmm. it it's it's it kind of takes away your your support of the protagonist. But, you know, I think in some ways, particularly in, in Hateful Eight, he's kind of shifting your idea of who the protagonist is, which I think is interesting, you know, in uh, saying, OK, now you're on this guy's side, but then we'll tip the scale a little bit. And now now the person that you were kind of sympathetic towards, you kind of hate and the person that you kind of hated, you're a little sympathetic towards. I mean, your reaction to the hanging at the end um, may speak to that a little bit. You know, it's not just, it's not like a Korean, uh, revenge film where it's just like some of those by the end, like, I don't, have you ever seen, I saw the devil. I have not. No. Okay. By the end of that movie, I'm just, I'm not having any fun at all (laughs) because it's like, um, I understand that you are driven by this, um, by this revenge, but you have turned into an absolute monster. I mean, much like something like, uh, I assume you've seen like, have you seen old boy? Yes. Okay. Much kind of like that, but old boy, it's a little more like, I, I don't know. It's a little more digestible, I guess. Um, there, there are some of those Korean revenge films though, where it's just like, by the end, I'm, I'm not having fun and I don't, I'm not along for the ride anymore. I'm not, I'm not rooting for the revenge because you've, they've gotten it. And then some in spades. Well, and to that point, it's, what, like we talked about uh, with the review itself is what are what are we supposed to be getting out of this? Because it seems like they're having fun and they want us to have fun. And so all I can assume is that this is just like hostile or saw and it's not just revenge porn, but it's mm-hmm. gore porn. And we're supposed to be having fun watching these horrible people have horrible things done to them. And maybe it's just me. I mean, maybe our listeners, I mean, he's Quentin Tarantino's got an audience. The Saw movies have an audience. Maybe you and I are just the old fuddy-duddies here, but I find it really bothersome. I, I found it bothersome in this last one. I don't find it bothersome in, in, in Glorious Bastards. I know people do. I don't find it bothersome in in Django. I mean, I, I guess there are, there are some places, but sometimes that is very intentional. And, and then sometimes, you know, maybe he is reveling in a, a bit too much kill bill. It's, um, you know, like we said, it's a cartoon. A, uh, I'm just going backwards, I guess mm-hmm. Jackie Brown, there's hardly any violence in that. And the violence that is in that film is actually very effective. Like very, uh, when, when someone dies, it, it kind of, 
it, it, it punches you. And then, you know, I, I guess Reservoir Dogs is the closest to the later films as far as, you know, just the amount of violence, everyone, you know, no one gets out alive mm-hmm. in, in Reservoir Dogs, but that has more weight than, than maybe some of his, his later films do as well. Like it's, uh, and, and he's, you know, from that very beginning, he's dealing with characters where there is no real good guy because Tim Roth and Reservoir Dogs, um, you, you know, you find out he's the undercover cop and kind of go through his whole training and, and whatnot. And that's, you know, that's where I feel like Reservoir Dogs is actually a, has a vaster scope than hateful eight does in you actually get, you know, you get out to more places and more um, uh, you get more story out of it than you do in, mm-hmm. in hateful eight. Um, but by the end, you realize that his character is also flawed. You know, he's not just a cop, but he um, you know, the way he handles that woman when he steals her car is completely repulsive. Right. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. And I know this was just an oversight, but you didn't mention Pulp Fiction is how do you feel about Pulp Fiction? I mean, I, I, I didn't necessarily intentionally skip. Oh over yeah. It I, I know than, it wasn't deliberate. I was just wondering if I mean, like, there's I, a subtle message I like there. Pulp Fiction. I think Pulp Fiction's actually, um, the last time I saw it, I saw it with an audience. And I was amazed at how funny that movie is. And, and, you know, it had been a while since I had seen it and, uh, there's, it, I like it. I like Pulp Fiction a lot. Well, okay. Cause that's the thing is I would still say that Pulp Fiction is my favorite. And I think that objectively speaking, it's his masterpiece. Okay. Interesting. I don't know. This is going to say something about me that I don't know. I want to be said, but I would say Jackie Brown's probably my favorite. Um, and, and part of that might be the fact that he's working within a pre-existing world. He's working. It's the only thing that he's ever adapted someone mm-hmm. else's work. Um, and I think he does a really good job of, you know, playing in the Elmore Leonard world and then bringing his own, uh, aesthetic to it as well. I mean, he's, uh, he brings a lot of race issues to it that from my understanding, I haven't read rum punch, but from my understanding, aren't really in the book. Um, and, uh, it just, it, it, it's a slower film, I guess, like, because you don't have, you don't have that action or violence, but it's, it's such a tight little thriller too. I shouldn't say little because it's like at two and a half hours, which all of his movies, but it's are. an intimate story. It's a it, small story. Yeah, it is. And, and that's probably my favorite. I mean, one thing we've been, I, we've been lodging so much criticism at Quentin Tarantino, which I think is funny because overall I like his, I like his films. He asks, he asks for it for all intents and purposes. He invites it. Yeah. Coming, coming out of Django, I was actually at a point where I was like, okay, I've been, you know, a little apprehensive about, about anytime he has a new film coming out of Django. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm all in. And so I'd almost let my guard down to come into, to hateful eight and maybe it's back up now. But one of the things that has always bothered me about, Tarantino in, you know, he, as we've said, he knows how to direct, he knows how to write a script. It does feel like in some places in particularly in editing and some of the, this is going to sound really weird and nitpicky, but the choices that he has in, uh, the typefaces that he uses and, and just the, the CGs that he puts on screen have always bothered me. They always feel cheap. And maybe that's because he's trying to, you know, harken back to these old Kung Fu movies or these, you know, grindhouse films where the title, the titles are cheap and and all of this, but there's the thing that bothers me so much that he's, he's done through, I mean, he might do it in every single movie is he takes uh, footage that was shot regular speed, 24 frames a second, and then slows it down where you just see the strobing judder of, of stuff. I mean, he even does it here in, in hateful eight. Um, it, it just feels cheap 
and and very kind of juvenile and for for someone who pays so much attention to every detail it 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 takes me out of the movie every time and i don't understand why he does it yeah exactly that's that's the big point and so i don't understand why he does it but i believe he does it just to get attention Mm -hmm. and the most egregious acts of that is and we've already talked about this with hateful eight is always finding a way not always finding a way but finding a way to insert himself in his pictures here and there Mm -hmm. which i think the best way to describe is the reason i like I like Kill Bill, but the reason I prefer the pre-Kill Bill pictures is because at that point in time, he was still had something to prove, mm-hmm. and he wanted to show this is the type of world I want to create. These are the worlds I want to create, the characters I want to do, the stories I want to tell. Now it's more he just – he has nothing left to prove, and so what he wants to do is say – he wants he's on a high horse. He feels like, look how talented I am as director. Now I have – now I'm in the position to make moral statements. Okay, you and always he's just not there. You always throw these these kind of hypothetical questions at me. Oh boy, um, I, I've got one for you. So um, you you kind of mark Kill Bill as the turning point. I mean, because he gets into the revenge and everything. Coming off of Jackie Brown, though, Jackie Brown wasn't a huge commercial success. Like it, it had, I would say, a cult following, but it wasn't. You know, Pulp Fiction was like he was being lifted up in mm-hmm. and just celebrated as like. You know, he goes, he goes to Cannes and wins awards and he, he, uh, you know, wins, I believe, does he the win Palm best door. picture? Yeah, he went in yeah, the Palm door. Um, but it, then Academy Awards, he wins original screenplay. Uh, didn't, yeah, he's original, nominated for best picture. Does nominated, but yeah, that was um, Forrest Gump's year. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But you know, this, this little scrappy $10 million movie just becomes huge. He, yeah. And he was very much the poster boy of the nineties independent and, filmmaker. And, and then he decides, well, now I'm going to adapt Elmore Leonard. I'm going to release Jackie Brown, this movie that I really want to make. And it doesn't do much. And then kill bill is, um, you know, sort of a triumphant, uh, comeback in just like everyone, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's seeing it. Maybe not as not receiving the accolades that Pulp Fiction was as far as awards and that sort of thing. But by this point he didn't need Mm -hmm. it, but it was, you know, more in the public eye. Tarantino's back on his game. Do you think he's played it safe saying like, okay, well clearly this works for me. I'm just going to continue to make these kind of revenge movies. Um, it's one of those things I, I, the answer is yes, but I think that that's in the back of his mind. I don't even think he's considering it Mm -hmm. because in his mind, he's still the bravest filmmaker in America, but his brain right now is the fourth film by Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino, the fifth film Mm -hmm. on and on and on and on. And, you know, it, from a box office perspective, up until The Hateful Eight, it's worked in many ways. Yeah. It's, it's he's the brand. And yeah. so, yes, I very I very much agree that that's what's going him, on. Him and the wine scenes are almost their own self-contained 70s cinema like disaster happening. Like, and, I, and, it's and I don't think it's quite been as bad as, you know, Heaven's Gate. But well, but I think it, it hasn't happened yet. And maybe that Hateful Eight will be a wake-up call because mm-hmm. Hateful Eight is not going to do as well as his last couple of pictures, but I don't think it's anyone's going to lose their job over it. Right, but they, I mean, it was expensive to print all those mm-hmm. those 70 millimeter roadshow um, versions. And, and you know, it was in, in a time when everything's going to digital distribution and, and all of that, like they really made, to, to shoot it on uh, 65, to present it in 70, I mean, that is not cheap. And, and this, you know, as far as Quentin Tarantino standards goes, it's kind of a flop. No, exactly. And if he has any self-awareness or humility, and I'm not sure he does, he will look at that and say, 
this is a warning because mm-hmm. it's not it's not a heaven's gate level disaster but it is indicative that if he keeps going down this road the ninth film and or the tenth film by quentin tarantino will be and i don't think that's how he wants to end his career yeah i i don't think so i mean i think that's why he's limited himself to 10 because he's said many times that he doesn't want to you know drift off into just making bad films or drift off into obscurity or, or that sort of thing somebody who's all his younger stuff is regarded as masterpieces and then his older stuff is just sort of you know oh well he faded away yeah, yeah exactly and i find that kind of funny that that's a very responsible tack to take and it's also a very clever marketing ploy as well mm-hmm. because that doesn't sound like him he seems like someone who all filmmakers love movies but he seems like someone who has just a next level passion for movies him and like a martin scorsese they seem just people who just can't get away from movies yeah yeah and so i find that fascinating that he's taken that stance did you watch the vanity fair director's roundtable i've not no okay um it's i would say it's definitely worth worth a watch it's a little over an hour pretty interesting um it's him ridley scott david o russell uh several others but uh he kind of talks about um you know he only wants to make 10 films. He's always only wanted to make 10 films. He wants to get in and out. And they ask, you know, what do you want to do next? And he says, well, I think I want to do stage plays and write novels. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and, and, you know, hateful eight is kind of telling in that a little bit, and it feels like a stage play already. You know, it feels like a, an ad- adaptation of a, you know, one set stage play. Um, he is such a cinematic guy, but he's part of that. I think is just in his consumption and his also his, he loves to triumph um, or, or claim that that he is presenting um, films to you that you otherwise wouldn't see. I mean, he, he loves saying that he's the one that brought Juan car wide to America. Um, you know, things like that, where he just like beats his own drum toots his own horn yeah. um, sort of a thing. But you know, I, if, if we only get 10 and he goes to novels, I'm really excited to see what he does in that format. Uh, because I think he already writes, I mean, I don't know if you've ever read any of his screenplays, but he already writes all this superfluous backstory that it's never novelistic. makes it to the screen. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, while, while he is a very cinematic and obsessed with cinema sort of director, I think that translation will also be uh, welcome and interesting. Chris, let's play a little game. We know that uh, actors love to work with Quentin Tarantino. They love his dialogue. Who are some actors you'd like to see? in a Quentin Tarantino film, just ignore whatever the, the film can be, whatever, but what are some actors you'd like to see in a Quentin Tarantino film? Okay. This first one is, this is just the first thing that comes to mind and it's not the type of answer that I feel like I would typically give, but I, I like this idea. Johnny Depp. That was going to be my number two, but I love what, that you said that. Yeah, John, here's the thing is, and not to step on you I, here. I feel like we're going to be in the, well, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. Johnny Depp, a motivated Johnny Depp is a wonderful thing to watch. Mm-hmm. It, the, that's, the, that's the fun about Captain Jack is he was motivated. Yeah. And so I think Quentin Tarantino dialogue, that would be the kind of kick in the pants Johnny Depp needs right now to have fun again. Yeah, I, I want to love Johnny Depp again. It's just so damn hard. He uh, he um he's one of those actors who, like I said a second ago, whenever he's having fun on film, you're having fun on mm-hmm. film. He's able to create that connection. Right now, I, he's kind of adrift. It's almost like he wants to be 
a serious actor mm-hmm. and you get whitey bulger which that was 100 percent to get an oscar nom and he didn't even get it yeah, yeah so he just needs to go back to what he does which is having fun and i think quentin tarantino's the the way to do that so who is you said he's your number two who's your, your first uh this one? might be kind of obvious he's already been a quentin tarantino movie but it was a small role i'd like oh. to see michael keaton <laughs> in a longer yeah. performance i i would love to see them back together and, and you know give him a bit of a different because he was he's the straight man in uh in Jackie Brown. And then actually went on to play that character. I, his name escapes me, but went on to play that character in Soderbergh's out of sight mm-hmm. as well. Um, that's I, yeah, I, I would definitely love to see them uh, together, but for very different reasons. I've got, I've got another one that I, I don't know how you're going to feel about this. Mark Wahlberg, I think would be very interesting in a Tarantino. Well, once again, a, a motivated wall. Mark yeah. Wahlberg is an interesting thing to see. He's, yeah. very, he's very good when he was motivated. And, and I, I think that's the thing that is sort of motivating my, my choices here is people who I generally like, but very often can get off the rails and in, in really weird and bad places. And it just, it, it hurts me to um, to, to see them not doing well. Uh, okay. I, I have two more kind of lightning. See, I would, I also like to point out that <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we did not plan this. This was not something we planned yeah. in general. I thought I was spraining this on Chris. <laughs> so clearly he and I were connected here on this. This is something we both obviously wanted to talk about. Okay. I will go with, do you want the super obvious one first or the like, oh yeah, that's a great choice. Let's go first. obvious first. Okay. The rock. Oh like, gosh, yes, the, absolutely. The rock, oh gosh, the yeah. rock delivering Tarantino <laughs> dialogue would be amazing. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Southland Tales, the really weird, bizarre, off the rails. Well, you loaned it to me, I believe. Oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, um, he's like, uh, just imagine him doing that sort of ridiculous, you know, because he can he can deliver ridiculous dialogue and make you believe it. Mm-hmm. So I think he would do really well with Tarantino's mm-hmm. um, script. My character, he realizes it. That the apocalyptic crime rate is because of global deceleration. The rotation of the Earth is slowing down at a rate of 0.0000006 miles per hour each day, disrupting the chemical equilibrium in the human brain, causing very irrational criminal behavior. And then my last, this is actually probably now that I think about it, my favorite that I would love to see because it's, I think every about 10 years, he gets a really good performance and then goes off making national treasure movies. Um, or, and, and, you Oh, know, okay. This is going to be one of mine too. Uh, Nick Cage, Nick Cage needs that John Travolta yeah, bravo. punch. Yeah. Bravo. Um, yeah, you you and I, I can't even add anymore. Okay. I can add one more Alec Baldwin. Yeah, yeah. Alec Baldwin. Baldwin would do so well, too. Yeah, Al- okay, two more. Alec Baldwin <laughs> and Denzel Washington. Because a motivated Denzel Washington mm-hmm. is a wonderful thing mm-hmm. to watch, too. And I think he's kind of been missing that lately. Um, for Quentin Tarantino's next picture, I've thought about this a little bit. I don't know if you have. I would like to, I was trying to think of what he could do that's different, but that's still Tarantino. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking I would like to see a satire drama, kind of a a political satire drama, David Mamet kind of comedy thing. Hmm. That so, that so doesn't like, have egregious violence. If there is violence, it's just someone getting poisoned or like, something like, like a Glengarry Glen Ross sort of thing. Like a Glengarry Glen okay. Ross, but set in Washington or in, in a political huh. kind of situation, <laughs> almost like a House of Cards, but mm-hmm. House of Cards via Quentin Tarantino. I'd kind of like to see that. that. That would be interesting to see that. I I don't know if I trust him with it, though, to be perfectly honest. Like Washington, D.C. does not seem like his locale for success. Well, and exactly. And this is and I'm making that recommendation after i've already said that he needs to get off his soapbox and then Uh i say he needs to get on the ultimate soapbox but i think 
him doing a satire could be a very deliberate satire could be interesting. That, no, I, I I think a little more comedy would be a nice change of pace too for for Tarantino. Well, Chris and I can probably go on uh, ad infinitum. So it's time for you to join the conversation, dear listeners. What kind of movie do you want to see Quentin Tarantino make next, and who do you want to star in it? Let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. I've got my man in Hunter, recommendation time again. Um, I, I'm very curious what you have. I imagine you're not going Tarantino. Uh, maybe, maybe one of those great uh, Korean revenge movies that that I know you love so I, much. I, I don't think so. Um, you actually just said the name of the title. I'm not even sure you realized it. Oh, whenever, man. whenever Kurt Russell has a big masculine beard and he's out in the middle of nowhere in the snow. It's usually and and there's a lot of blood. It's usually pretty awesome. Um, and this, and Hateful Eight was for the most part until it got, it got weird. This movie never does. And it's John Carpenter's remake of The Thane. Um, the original The Thane from Another World is absolutely essential viewing. And I would say that this is, if you're a horror movie fan, you definitely need to see John Carpenter's The Thane. And I, I have nothing more to say about it. You, if you haven't seen it, then go, go tuck yourself in on a nice snowy afternoon and watch The Thane. So good. So, so good. Yeah. I like Carpenter doesn't get better than this for me. Um, you know, like that, that early to mid eighties carpenter with Kurt Russell, just, just so damn good. That's, that's a really good pick and one that I've seen and can actually, uh, can, can actually, actually recommend speak for to, once. Yeah. Um, so I have, I'm going to, I'm going to do two recommendations. One just being Jackie Brown. I assume there are listeners out there who have not seen Jackie Brown for a number of reasons. Watch Jackie Brown. It is just so damn good. Michael Keaton's great in it. Pam Greer's great in it. The whole the whole cast. It's it's a little bit. It's Tarantino with a little bit less of that, um, you know, obnoxious Tarantino than than you're used to. Um, but my actual recommendation is going to be a movie that I recently caught on Netflix. I didn't realize it, it was there. It's a it's a movie that I don't think you would expect me to have seen. Um, and that is Pumping Iron. The huh. it's on Netflix. <laughs> it's on. Netflix. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um. It's uh. You know. I. I'll say this about it. It is a movie that I think is a better uh snapshot of a time and place than it is necessarily a documentary. Um, because it's, it's very, for those who don't know, it's about Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, preparing for his very last Mr. Olympia pageant. Is it pageant? Is that the right term? Um, They might be offended by that. It's competition. (laughs) Okay. Mr. Olympia competition. And he's, I think it's, he's going for like his seventh or eighth title, something like that. Um, going up against Lou Ferrigno, who went on to play the Hulk, 
um, the the Hulk version of the Hulk, um, if that makes sense to you. And um, it's just it's it's worth watching just for Arnold. I mean, there's these interviews with him that are just absolutely great. Um, and then him sort of getting into people's heads and, you know, you, you kind of get a glimpse inside the psyche of Arnold Schwarzenegger, which, you know, when we were talking about, when we were, we were reviewing predator, you were saying, you know, he's actually a very smart man, you know, borderline genius. And I, I'll be honest. I didn't really believe you. I believe you more after exactly. seeing this, him talking about just the psychology of, um, of bodybuilding and getting in someone's head and that sort of thing. And then seeing him do it, like sitting at breakfast with Lou Ferrigno and his parents and telling him like, you're so puny, you're not ready. That, and, and so, yeah, that's the thing. I haven't seen the movie uh, all the way through, but I knew about him sitting with yeah. his competitor and ripping him in front of his parents. Yeah. In front of his parents. And you know, Lou Ferrigno's like a, a head taller than, than, uh, uh, Schwarzenegger is. And just by all accounts, a much beefier dude. And he's telling him, you're puny. You're not ready. You can't do do this, but you see, I mean, you see Arnold Schwarzenegger studying with a ballerina to learn like his moves and stuff. And um, just one more thing. It's it's I found it fascinating what exactly went into bodybuilding, because in my mind, bodybuilding was just like it's all about lifting weights and ultimately lifting weights is only a means to an end. Like the actual competitions are about presenting the peak physical specimen in in a way you know there's there there are no weights involved there's no lifting or anything it's just flexing muscles in front mm-hmm. of judges and the way I, I think uh schwarzenegger talks very eloquently about exactly what it is that um you know he, he compares himself to a sculptor but instead of you know just just you know easily sculpting something out of stone he's sculpting a body yeah it's not it's not marble it's muscle i'm yeah. uh i'm that's a fantastic pick i'm very much looking forward to this <laughs> however i'm looking forward to it just slightly less than arnold schwarzenegger in a quentin tarantino movie i'm oh, actually looking gosh. more forward to that yeah because that needs to happen he actually suggested i think one of his early inglorious bastards had schwarzenegger and stallone as the two <laughs> leads but that's neither here nor there okay Hunter, yeah, I, great pick I, yeah i think we gotta we gotta leave it there because otherwise we're just gonna get off on another rabbit trail of oh what about this guy what about that guy yeah, so yeah, that I had a lot of fun, Chris. So, um, but fortunately, that is a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. But you can check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, weekly movie recommendations, and more. You can say hi to Hunter on Facebook or me on Twitter at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far in the credits, let's face it, you should probably go ahead and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you rate us or leave us a nice review? It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll make you feel awesome. Absolutely. We can only hope that you guys are hipsters who want to say, you know what? I was into War Starts at Midnight before it became big, but the only way it can become big is if you rate and review us on iTunes. So please do that. We really appreciate it. However, if you are the trolling type who is just hate listening through these credits, well, tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and we'll probably play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Shout out to Escondido for this week's music. Find tour dates and information about their new album, Walking with a Stranger, at thebandescondido.com. But then join us in another fortnight as we celebrate our one-year anniversary by reviewing yet another Alejandro Gonzalez Senorito film, The Revenant. Hey, Hunter, you know what I'm looking forward to most about uh, The Revenant? What's that, Chris? Well, Zach Alphanakis was so good playing a different character in Birdman. I'm really excited to see him play a bear in this. You know, I'm a little nervous since he wasn't nominated for Best Supporting Actor. 
you would you think he'd run away with it. it it's kind of like Andy Circus when you're you know when you're playing a, an animal they just don't give you any love no respect no respect <laughs> okay well don't forget to prepare yourself for episode zero in which we reveal our origin story with a review of the life and death of Colonel Blimp that's coming soon so rent it on the interwebs or grab it at your local library thanks for listening folks sayonara partners yeah yeah he loves me I'm his rodeo queen <clears throat> unique New York. Unique New York. Sally sells seashells. Okay. The Human Torch was denied a bank loan. The Human Torch was denied a bank loan.